My name's Tedrick, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm alive and sober tonight by the very special grace of a loving God, the loving program of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is April Fool's Day. This is a good day for me. Of 1968. And I thank God that I'm an alcoholic, and if you're a newcomer, that'll make you want to puke. I want to thank the committee for asking me to your third annual announcement meeting. I guess I, I realize why they do that. It's because people don't read anymore. The sale of the big books is off this year for the first time. I want to thank the committee for asking me here, and Connie and Karen and Betsy for picking me up. Uh, uh, Betsy had to leave, uh, and she plays in the symphony orchestra. And um, my plane was about an hour late uh, because Karen called the airline and told her that her car wasn't cleaned out yet. And then she got it clean. It was so light, she ran into somebody and didn't realize going as fast as she was. God, that story of Vince's just gets more dreadful every time I hear it. Jesus! That book of flight, for God's sake, where they feed you. Well, all I know is if I keep doing the things you people tell me to do and Keep practicing the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and practicing step 10, 11, and 12 every day. Why? Maybe someday I'll be able to die, at, die in peace in my sleep like my grandfather did and instead of in abject screaming terror like the rest of the passengers in his car. Softer, easier way. I saw Vince asked for all the newcomers here. I asked for a different group, though. Is uh, is there anybody back here that uh, or in, a, in AA tonight that's that's uh, less than uh, a year sober? That's that this is the first time they've ever been to AA. Very first time. Yeah, this is one person. This is. See, this is uh, what I find is happening around the United States, and uh, and I don't know. I mean, I guess it's happening in Canada too. Uh, oh, I remember Vince's car when he came in. He used to hide it at the Ebell Club on, on trash night. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we're doing now, uh, AA is shrinking across the United States. I don't know if you know this, but the treatment centers are closing. Very rapidly, which I'm very pleased with, you know, spin dry. <laughs> All you get in those places is a $30,000 big book and a bus ride day anyway. <laughs> I had some dumb son of a bitch I was talking to the other night. He says, I'm going back to Hogue Memorial for relapse therapy. I said, no kidding, how much is that? <laughs> oh, he says they got a specialist, only $1,400. 
takes two weeks. I said, I'll do it for seven, take one day, and I'll guarantee it. <laughs> he went to the hospital. <laughs> and then uh, a lot of the AA meetings are, uh, are closing across the United States, and they're changing, uh, reopening uh, as closed meetings for alcoholics only. Uh, because we're trying to fix everything in AA, which is a lot of crap. And if there's any drug addict alcoholics here, or Andas, or Dula Dicks, or whatever you call yourself, I, I want you to start donating $2 at every meeting. So what's happening is we're recycling newcomers because everybody's forgotten how to make 12-step calls. And and so if you want to practice 12-step call, work with some of these newcomers that are, we're recycling because they're a real challenge. They know all the answers. And uh, and and if you're new and and or not you know or nearly new or not quite through, why for God's sake don't do the things we suggest. Because what Vince was talking about is a terrifying word. It's called surrender. And and, and the last thing you want to become if you're a newcomer is an alcoholic. And you catch it here. <laughs> and and so if you surrender, uh, according to uh, chapter 3, which says we learned, which means experientially, not academically, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we're alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Stay away from that. Because if you really get started in this, then pretty soon you're going to learn the secret handshake and you're going to get the password and the ring, you know. You don't want that to happen because then you've got to stay here and it's dreary. You can tell. If there's any Al-Anons, you should probably leave because we're going to laugh a lot. Untreated Al-Anons, I always have to say that. I just after me at the end of the meeting. I was born an alcoholic. The reason I know that is first word my mother said was, "My God, you see how much he drank." I was only about I was only about seven minutes old, and uh, I, I uh, the first sixteen years of my life, I felt like an alien on a foreign planet. Nobody given me the brochure. And, uh, that pretty, just pretty well explains it. And I didn't, I got my first introductions to alcohol and I didn't know what it was, really. Uh, I was weak and puny and small. And my mother thought that if uh, she gave me fortified port wine, why that would build me up, build up my blood. So I stayed weak, puny, and sickly for years. <laughs> and then when I started teething, why they'd bathe my gums in 100 proof bourbon and I was teething for years. <laughs> Just loved it. And then I got into my father's beer and he said, you won't like that. And I said, why not? And he said, well, it's an acquired taste. And he was right. Somewhere between the first and second sip, I acquired the taste. <laughs> I never really got started, though, until I went to a friend's uh 
friend of a friend of ours was having a little uh sixteen year birthday party and uh and his mother was serving martinis and that's when I found out my mother lied to me. She told me martinis were a woman's drink, huh? I don't remember much about that. All I did was sit down and have a few quiet drinks with a few intimate friends and when I got up from the table twenty three years had gone by. I was a blackout drinker, so most of my story is hearsay. And, uh, but I hear I did some weird things. Uh, I was at a Friday night meeting in at, uh, in Rodale in Beverly Hills uh, not too long ago. And uh, Keith knows that me. They got something for everybody there. Man, I mean, Alaquin and... They got people there for guys that can't stay away from hookers. They got a meeting for them. John Anon. <laughs> yes, they, people that keep on talking on and on, you know. <laughs> and I saw this guy across the room and he had his hair all spiked up like this, his dyed orange and yellow, and he had green cheeks and a great gigantic safety pin through his cheek like this, and his ears were orange. And I was looking at him, and all of a sudden he looked across at me, and he says, What are you looking at? I said, I do not know. <laughs> but I said, I, uh, I said, I was a blackout drinker, and one, uh, one weekend I remember I was, I was babysitting an Amazon parrot, and I was just sitting here thinking, wondering if maybe we weren't related. Vince was talking about social drinkers. I don't think social drinkers should be allowed to drink. There was one on the plane driving out here. And uh we had a good driver. He didn't get off the road much. And and this idiot across the aisle from me ordered a drink. And and he's reading something like this. And, and he's twirling his drink. And then he... Then he picked it up like this and... He went. And he put his goddamn finger and started stirring in it. I said, don't do that, the ice will melt. And he, and he keeps on with this crap. And, and the next thing, I'm trying to read, right? Next thing I hear, he says, I lost my drink. I said, you put it in the aisle, you dummy, drink it. I had a secretary for years who was a social drinker. God, she was a weirdo. We'd go to lunch, she'd order a glass of wine, sit there and drink half of it. I could just see it evaporating. I'd say, why don't you drink the rest of it? She said, oh, my dear, no, I might get dizzy. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll fill a 16-ounce glass of fortified port wine, slam that baby back, you go right through dizzy to fun. Something happened to me when I drank alcohol. I never heard described by a social drink. Never heard it described. And I guess the best way of describing what happened to me uh, when I drank is to just kind of 
tell you about maybe one day of drinking in the life of Big Ted. And it started at lunchtime. And I knew exactly when it was lunch because I would be signing something and my pen would fly across the room. And I knew at that moment that I had to go to lunch because if I didn't go to lunch now, I'd fly across the room and nobody's going to put me back together again. And uh, sometimes lunch was early, six. <laughs> but when the pen went, I went. I don't know about you, but I love to keep track of these stupid things that seemingly normal people uh, say. There's another ass on the plane. That Before we got on, I heard the Boston flight out of Denver ran out of food. And uh, this idiot says, well, they better not run out of food food on our flight to Columbia. I said, what are you going to do, get out and go somewhere for lunch? <laughs> Jesus. Shut him up. So you come into this bar at 6 o'clock in the morning, you're flying into a million pieces, and this idiot behind the bar says, would you like a drink? Oh, no, I'm into health. I just finished jogging. I think probably a pickled pig's foot and a hard-boiled egg would be just super. <laughs> yeah, bring me a drink, make it a triple, and hurry. Finally, after an epoch passes, he brings a drink. Through an ingenious set of geometric levers, you crank it into your face without drowning this brain surgeon next to you. Scalpel keeps flying across the operating theater and sticking in the nurses, and they're narrow-minded. All nurses should be untreated, Al-Anon. Most of them are. <laughs> and so then the bartender comes by, and, and he says, yes, uh, Did I miss something? Bartender comes by and he asks the second most stupid thing of the day. He says, would you have time for another? Huh. You look at your watch, it only has one hand on it. <laughs> yeah, it's an alcoholic watch. Hadn't moved, right? Say, so, yeah, I've got time for another and please hurry. Finally, he brings that one back. You slam that baby down and and then this magic happens. I've never heard described by a social drinker. See, all of a sudden... uh all of a sudden, that hand that couldn't hold a pen a moment before is as solid as a rock. And, it, and somebody's turned the heat on, you notice it's not raining inside your suit anymore. You know, and you look at that perfectly synchronized reflection of yourself in the back bar and mirror. Huh? Clint Eastwood, you devil. <laughs> and you look down at this brain surgeon and you say, hey, what kind of day are you having, craphead? And all of a sudden, all the sharp edges and the rough corners fall off of life, and it's round, and it's smooth, and it's your pineapple. See, and all of a sudden, that god hole in your gut, with the wind blowing through it, kind of starts to heal over, and, and that ice cube with eight million corners sticking out starts to thaw out. And all of a sudden, I... Oh, they're leaving just before recovery. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I step, step across a line into a land I call the land of someday I'll. <laughs> someday I'll get it together. You know. But over there, behind that alcohol, see, uh, I'm as good as, I measure up to, and I'm a part of. See? 
over there across that line, I can go anywhere I want to go, do anything I want to do, and be anybody I want to be. All I have to figure out is who you want me to be so you won't throw me away. And I end up living my life in that chameleon-like, people-pleasing mode, living my life for your expectations, real or imagined. See, over there, I can do the one thing I wanted to do all my life. I can just step out easy. See, that's all I ever wanted to be able to do, just step out easy. And alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. Behind that alcohol, I had a race car in the track when I was uh, 16 years old behind a forged birth certificate. Put one through a crash fire crash wall when I was 17. Spent a year on a striker frame. Still broke my back. Told I'd be never be able to walk again as long as I live. A year later, I walked into the doctor's office with a broken thumb. He said, how'd you break it? I said, I fell down. He said, how'd you fall down? I said, in a downhill race at 80 miles an hour on skis, and he fainted. He was a doctor, told me I'd never walk again as long as I live. Buying that alcohol, uh, I became a charter member of the Mount Baldy Ski Patrol. I was going to Claremont Men's College. Mount Baldy, in my opinion, is and still is uh, the, one of the most dangerous mountains in the world. It used to kill six people a year as regular clockwork. It got at least two last year, and I know where they went down. And uh, I have terminal acrophobia, fear of heights. I can't get on a bar stool and stand up without a parachute in the back of <laughs> And I learned, but I learned years and years ago, the difference between a hero and a coward. It's booze. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you climb into those gondolas and those chairlifts? And uh, the answer is you invent the drinking man's ski pole. And each one will hold a pint. You fill those ski poles with Ron Rico Purple Label 157 proof rum, and I guarantee you, you don't care how high or how fast. And in those early days where the shivs used to freeze and the cable would come off the bullwheel on the chairlifts, and we'd have to climb into those cables and into those towers and get those people out before they froze to death. Because in those days, they were trying to make ends meet, and they had tourists going up and down the chairlifts all the time, and skirts, and and short-sleeved blouses, and they did not know how vicious that mountain could get. I've been on that mountain when the temperature was dropping 10 degrees per hour per hour, and the wind factor was rising at the rate of 10 knots per hour per hour. And it can be a real dangerous mountain. We used to put a rope barricade up uh, between Thunder Mountain and Baldy to keep the social drinkers from flying off the backside. Because if they miss that barricade, why, well, they got about an 8,000-foot free fall into Victorville. <laughs> All you ever heard those dummies say was something like, oops. <laughs> Never hear an alcoholic say that. If he went over the edge, he just looked back and said, it's a downhill race, I'm going for it. Because <laughs> yeah. we don't care how we, what we're doing as long as it looks good. I was the only member of the ski patrol with... It wasn't thrown off for drinking. I worked on the National Ski Patrol as a member in good standing for over 20 years. They thought I came that way. And uh, behind that alcohol, I helped do the first article for Life magazine on scuba diving. They hadn't even invented the word yet. We were making our own uh, deep water gear by by using high-altitude bomber breathers and changing the diaphragms. And it's terrifying under that water. I don't know if you've ever been down 100 feet and started running out of air, but it gets, makes you nervous. <laughs> and we found out how to overcome that. You just take a dish of pure grain alcohol, the same stuff we run the 
race cars on it. Put it right in front of the intake manifold of the compressor and bubble the air through it, and you can get about 50% alcohol vapor in the tank. Under 2,000 pounds per square inch pressure, you can put the mouthpiece in your face, stand on the deck of the ship, and get euphoria of the deep. <laughs> but you're not, you're not afraid. Find that alcohol, I, uh, I learned how to fly planes off a little grass strip in, uh, Culver City called Cloverfield, now Santa Monica Airport. We used to fly, uh, biplanes upside down a lot. They thought we were really doing a good pre-flight. We were on ladders looking at the top half of the upper wing. What we were doing was changing the numbers, because people got real nervous the way we flew. And in those days, why there was two amusement parks right at the end of the runway. There was Ocean Park Pier and Venice Pier, and they had roller coasters, and they had little two-by-four stands up the top of the roller coaster just before the car went over the edge, and a little sign hand-painted said, Don't Stand Up. And when we came over that sign, they found out why. And nothing was funnier. We'd wheel right, turn upside down, go over Surfer's Beach, Malibu. You've never seen anything as funny as 50 macho surfers hiding under their surfboards. They weren't afraid we'd hit them. They were afraid we'd puke on them. <laughs> that's what we usually did, just about that time. And we turned upside down because we didn't want it in there with us. <laughs> Behind that alcohol, I was able to do all those things. At the age of 24, I was one of the youngest subdividers in Southern California. I was building over 200 houses a year, and I was already in the grip of the terminal progressive disease of alcoholism is also cunning, baffling, powerful, progressive, and patient. Already I was up to the three, four martini lunch. Already I was going through withdrawal. Already I was at the point where if I did not go to lunch and have those martinis when I started the shake, rattle, and roll, I would go into withdrawal. I did not know that was happening. I did not know in that withdrawal I might very well go into a seizure. And I did not know in that seizure I might very well shatter my spine in 16 places like one of my very dearest friends. And I did not know in that alcoholic seizure that I might very well die from the terminal progressive disease of alcoholism. And it would not have mattered if I had known. Because my big book tells me that knowledge is no defense against taking the first drink. All I knew was that alcohol was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. See, it was the fuel that fired the boiler. I'm bodily and mentally different than my fellows, and so alcohol being an anesthetic operates totally different in my system. I can have eight cups of coffee and find, everything works different in my system. I can have eight cups of coffee and fall sound asleep behind the wheel. And alcohol made it all go. And alcohol was a fantastic friend. And I, I had uh, no problems with alcohol my, during my drinking career until the last year. Yeah, a lot of other people had problems with my alcohol. <laughs> and they got two drunk driving arrests, and they were both bad breaks. Um, some of you had bad breaks, too. My first one happened when I ran away from home to get married when I was about 30. And uh, why is that funny? I know a good thing when I have it. And uh, some friends of mine uh, threw a great big stag party on one of those yachts down Newport Beach farming there, drinking my favorite thing that night, booze. <laughs> and I overshot the mark because that was my goal. I always overshot the mark. I was a pig. 
I drank everything I could as fast as possible, wherever, whenever, preferably yours. But I was a very prudent driver, and so I got very few tickets. Besides that, I'd become an absolute expert at passing field sobriety tests. And that, those days, they did not have better law enforcement through chemistry. They just gave you a field sobriety test. And uh, I must have passed hundreds of those things. And I'd also learn how to drive in, without having alcohol in the cockpit. And if some of your friends are getting caught with uh, open containers in the car, that's really tacky. <laughs> and so you might pass on this bit of intelligence to them. And I found this out. Um, we had a reciprocity agreement in those days. We could work on any mountain in the country when the snow got bad in Southern California. And we usually picked Mammoth Mountain because it was about the maximum distance that we could stay awake. And... Um, this one particular night, why, uh, and we all drove very terribly fast cars, full race cars. I went to school with the McCullough brothers, so we all had McCullough superchargers in our cars. And the police just could not catch us, really. And back then, I grew up uh, in the era that uh, maybe you saw the movie American Graffiti. We did all of that stuff. We pulled the differentials out of the squad cars. We we committed the fake murders. And uh, we we did the stuff all looking like Fonzie. <laughs> we did the stuff that they made the movie out of. And uh, in those days, if the police couldn't catch you, well, it was bad form to radio ahead. And they just, if we could race from uh, Culver City and make it to Beverly Hills without them catching us, they'd just give us a high five. But they'd wait. <laughs> and uh, we pulled a differential out of a car one, out of a squad car one night, and they caught my friend in Santa Monica the next Sunday morning and blew a $2,000 engine to pieces with a 357 Magnum. Didn't say a word, just pulled up alongside the car and blew it to pieces. That'd be about a $20,000 engine today. So uh, this one particular night, we were going to Mammoth and a friend's brand new Cadillac convertible, and he had a full race engine in it. And we got about as far as Mulholland, which is about two minutes away we drove, and and I was nervous. I hadn't brought my drinking and driving and passenger bottle, and so I, mine was in the back of the car in a slant rack on the, in the ski pole. And I said, uh, "You have anything to drink?" And he said, "Yeah." He handed me this hose out front of the dashboard. God, there's a lot of activity here. <laughs> Newcomers just can't stay still. <laughs> we used to get an old timer just sit on them. <laughs> And then if they started talking, we just leaned back. <laughs> and uh, I said, I want a drink, not an enema. <laughs> and he said, this hose even had a neat little enema hose clamp on. He said, well, dummy, he just said, put that pipe in your mouth and pull a windshield washer knob. And uh, he had a great big container held about two gallons of scotch up forward of the radiator where it stay nice and cool. And he had the windshield washer pump buried in there and... You'd pull a knob and get about two ounces of Cuddy Sark straight up, man. We'd always stop in Mojave and refuel and take on a little gas, too. And we were running twin twin gas tanks, so if we couldn't outrace the cops, we'd outlast them. You haven't lived unless you've gone through Red Rock Canyon at 118 miles an hour in a brand new cat convertible. And we hung the left into the tall timber out of Bishop that night, and uh, I was I was on the passenger side, and I was asleep, actually. And all of a sudden, there was this horrendous crash, and I, woke, I slid underneath the dashboard and 
Finally, I got untangled. There's glass and crap all over the place. I said, what happened? He said, uh, there goes another one. <laughs> said, well, he said, I don't know. He said, I guess we, uh, we hit a branch or something. Didn't bother me. I just reached back in my war bag, grabbed my goggles, put them on, and had another blast off the hose. And we got into <clears throat> Mammoth that next morning about seven o'clock and I was so drunk I couldn't stand up. I opened the door and fell out on the ice. Fortunately, there was an untreated Alanon that had been lurking all night in the snowbank, waiting for somebody to rescue, save, and repair. And she had all the equipment. She had a pillow under one hand, a blanket under the other, and large bosoms. They need those. And she picked me up off the ice and held me real close and patted me on the head and said those magic words that only an Al-Anon can say. I, they're there. <laughs> oh. Make, makes me nostalgic just thinking about it. And she said, it's going to be all right. And then she turned around and looked at this car. And she said, did you know there's a deer in your back seat? Well, I hadn't seen the goddamn car yet. I turned around and looked at it. The whole right side was gone. Right bumper, right fender, right headlight. The hood was all crinkled up. Of course, the right windshield was gone. There's this huge tear down the convertible top. And here's this little fork buck sitting on the back seat. His little hooves are crossed like this. And... uh I said, well, yeah, he was tired of walking. You know what she said? Oh. They'll believe anything. So she dragged me into the warming up hut there to get tuned up on half a gallon of Grenache Rosé. And about nine o'clock in the morning, I find myself at the top of the mountain. Some idiot nailed a number to my chest. I'm entered in a downhill race. So, if you can clear those gates without watch, wiping out the timers under that kind of handicap, passing a field sobriety test is a piece of work. No problem. So, I'm driving back from the stag party. You thought I'd lost my place, didn't you? <laughs> and, and I developed this way of driving. I was a very prudent driver. I was driving a little single-seater Thunderbird in those days. It was permanently converted because I'd undone the snaps doing about 90 one morning. <laughs> Yeah. Quick. But you're busy when you're driving. I was, you know, I had all these damn houses I was building, so I had a two-way radio in the car, and I had a dictograph dictate gibberish to my secretary to keep her confused. And, and you got to listen to the radio, and you got to smoke, get rid of the ash. You got to watch the rearview mirror for police. And you got to close one eye so that you know which lane is yours. And, and you're busy. So I developed this way of driving, which seemed to handle it all. I just leaned on the door jam. And cigarette ashes, a guy back there, he said. Cigarette ashes kind of dribble away, and the rearview mirror is right there, and you got that hose in the other side of your mouth, and 
case you need a bracer there and you can tune the radio and you're under got the phone underneath your cheek like this you know pretty well under control the only thing you have to be continually aware of is that your lane's the one on the bottom so i'm cruising along the anaheim freeway there the five freeway i guess coming back and uh 91, I guess. I went through this tacky little town called Anaheim, and uh, the red lights came on the gumball machine, and and I still don't know why the police stopped me to this day. I was clear over on the right-hand side of the freeway, minding my own business in the dirt, and uh, <laughs> going about five miles an hour, because I'm prudent. <laughs> And I, I remember I looked up the police officer. I said, why'd you stop me, officer? And they asked you, he was a smart ass. He says, well, we don't allow people to make movies on the freeway. And we thought maybe you were filming a rerun of Wagon Train. And then they asked these trick questions. Like, where do you live? I don't know. You have my driver's license. And the son of a bitch opened the door. And I fell out. I think that was the only time in my life I ever said anything as stupid as, oops. He looked down and he said, you're not kidding. Huh. I got bizarre. I got the same thing seven years later in Glendale, and I, I'll never understand that. I left this, Glendale's tacky enough. I left this party about two o'clock in the morning. I'd been driving a hundred miles an hour for an hour, and I figured I was fairly close to home. It was only seven miles. <laughs> Policeman stopped me, same crap. Where do you live? I said, Beverly. I said, I don't know. I said, says here in Beverly Hills, and I made a disastrous error then. I said, right, nothing gets by you. <laughs> he said, well, you're in Glendale. How can you drive for an hour at 100 miles an hour in Glendale and still be in Glendale? <laughs> then he opened the door. <laughs> and it, it just went on and on, I'm telling you. And finally, I went to the psychiatrist about this pen flying out of my hand. And I wish you people had stopped going to psychiatrists. I've concluded that you people are the reason they have the highest suicide rate of any professional group known. If I was a psychiatrist, I have a sign on my door that said, no drinkers allowed. Or people with peppermint on their breath either. <laughs> and he asked weird questions. Like, why are you nervous? I said, at $65 an hour, you're going to figure that out. <laughs> he said, well, do you drink? I said, yes, I'll have a scotch and water. <laughs> the little veins on his forehead were throbbing in and out. Everybody's veins did this when I talked to him about five minutes. I had a, they put a, female judge up in front of me in Oregon one time when I was talking. This idiot acted like everybody in the whole convention was there on her court card. <laughs> Talk about making veins stand out. I said, listen, your honorship, 
I'm a very prudent person, and I understand all the hateful, meanful things you can do, but you're talking to the wrong person. When I come into your courtroom after lunch, if you can impress that person <laughs> what's wrong, and they can remember it. So, why'd I put that in? It made me lose my place. <laughs> See, he says, that's not what I mean. He says, how much do you drink? I said, I'm not quite sure. How much do you have? He says, he said, that, have you drank all your life? I said, no, not yet. <laughs> and finally, after a protracted length of time, he pronounced me cured. And I said, oh, really? He says, yeah. He said, why do you look so morose? I said, well, hell, Doc, I came in here. I was Clint Eastwood. Now I'm nobody. <laughs> he said, well, nevertheless, here's some little green and black pills that'll keep the pen from flying across your room. They're called, um, Librium, now it's before medical science found out that alcoholism is caused by a Valium deficiency. <laughs> and, um, he said, as far as your modest drinking is concerned, why, you should probably go to A&A. &A. And uh, so I wrote him a hot check. He jumped out of the window. He had no fear of height. <clears throat> you know, a while later, I came home and and there's the animal in the entry hall mirror one more time. We had a little meeting in my head and decided that it wasn't worth going on. I thought I'd just kill myself. So I went upstairs and dug my 45 automatic out from under the pillow. I kept it there because they were after me. And <laughs> you don't have to be paranoid to know they're after you. <laughs> I qualified expert with a 4-5, man. I hit what I aim at. I jacked the shell in the chamber, took dead aim between my eyes, and blew a $90 mirror off the wall. <laughs> Scared my roommate so bad he ran right out and joined AA. <laughs> Six years later. Still had 45 caliber moth, hole, moth holes in his clothes. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, the drinking's not working too zippy anymore. And, and, uh, and suicide doesn't work. And the psychiatrist didn't work worth a damn, so... Thought maybe I'd go to A and A. Now this was nineteen about nineteen fifty-eight, and uh, and I couldn't go to a meeting in Beverly Hills because everybody'd know me. So I found a meeting in West Hollywood, <laughs> where they have something for everybody. And this and this meeting was in a Quonset hut. I don't know if you know what they are. They're semicircular. Uh, sheet metal, corrugated sheet metal thing, and God, they're noisy. I mean, when it gets cold, they shrink and make noise, and when it gets hot, they expand and make noise, and, and they found this dismal, dreary place, and I, and I walked in there, and, uh, contrary to what Vince said, there were alcoholics in there. I knew. Some of those guys, you could light a kitchen match on their nose. And they were all lined up around the room, not in these lavish chairs like this, but in those tin bottom kind, give you the hemorrhoids. <laughs> and their heads were in their hands, because obviously their life was over. It was Griminon. <clears throat> and God, you were all old. Jesus, some of you were almost 40. And, and I, I guess it was a spiritual meeting, because they had these candles and these stubby little candles and these aluminum I found out later that the treasurer had gotten drunk and run off with all the money, and they'd shut the lights off. And um, and that's the first time 
I, I think it's the same Phoebe that Vince ran into. <clears throat> I mean, she was up there talking when I walked. I did what new, newcomers, you need to know exactly how to come to a meeting. Come five minutes late and leave five minutes early. And none of it will rub off. And I got there five minutes late. And, and the, I didn't know this gal was up there for a long time. She was turned sideways. And finally she turned around and I thought, my heavens, that'd be like making love to a gunny sack full of antlers. And, and Phoebe's, Phoebe's up there clattering away. And uh, you talk about skinny. And she had false teeth, those kind you get mail order from Iowa. Those choppers that hang way out like you Eat corn through a barbed wire fence with her. Yeah. She's clacking away up there. Oh, I mean, gone. She kind of drooled out of the corner of one of her mouth, you know. Finally, she got to this really important part, I guess. She said, if you want what we have. I thought, Jesus, honey, if you got anything, hang on to it. What's a stepper like me doing in a dead-end outfit like this? God! And then they, finally she finished. Oh, God, and they clapped. Huh. And then it, it was the coffee break time, and they were passing this tin plate to see if they get the lights turned back on. And they, You were all lower companions. I had never seen an outfit like this in my life. And they, they served me some coffee. I looked at it. You could fill an ink pen with it. And somebody handed me a day-old donut. Day-old? You could have shot pool with it. And there's this fat man over in the corner. And he had all these little people around him. Sort of a overweight Clancy. And I, I said, who's that? And Phoebe says, that's the sponsor. His name is Buford. Well, he's overweight. I thought maybe he knew something. So I went over and I said, Buford, <laughs> tell me about this A&A. &A. Well, he, he started with his finger in my chest. Pissed me off. He said, well, Sonny, what A&A &A is all about is you just don't drink no matter what. How many of you have heard that crap? I said, fat man, you don't even know what an alcoholic is. See, an alcoholic is a person who drinks, no matter what. And if you're sensitive like I am, easily embarrassed, I usually drink about two weeks before my ass falls off. I mean, I can kind of feel her loosening up. I mean, can you imagine stroking down the street unprepared and some Al-Anon behind you says, Hey, kid, your ass fell off. You gotta be drunk. All you got is a back with a crack. Embarrassing. And you say, well, bring her along. I might want to sit on it later. She will. He says, you just don't understand. He says, it's the first drink to get you drunk. 
I said, well, maybe I am in the right place. What is it you drink? <laughs> See, because I know what drink it is gets me drunk. It's the second to the last one. You ever hear these crapheads in a meeting? They stand up and they say, Well, it must have been a good day. I didn't drink. I don't think so. I think you should probably drink. That's what I think. I mean, there's people around this program that have been, they're so dry, they're a fire hazard. Just white knuckle hanging on. You just don't drink. Yeah, until you go stark, raving, suicidal, lunatic mad. What are they doing? Well, you gotta think the whole drink through, sonny. What are you smoking? I mean, there's a deep thought. Wow. I never thought about a drink in my life. I think about a Magnum or, or four, or a drunk, or a weekend. I wouldn't even stop at a bar if I thought they had one drink. You know, well, you don't understand. He says, it's easy does it. I said, easy never did nothing. He said, well, it's one day at a time. I said, well, yeah, with all that visceral armor you got hanging out over your belt buckle, maybe you can last a whole day. Not for a stepper like me, Jack. Maybe a nanosecond. I'll do it like that. He says, well, it's live and let live. I said, I'm going to tell you something. You get that damn finger out of my chest or I'm going to rip your right arm off and wear your head out with it. That's how I live and let live. I said, let me ask you this, old man. If you're going to take away my alcohol, what are you going to give me to replace it? What are you going to give me that will heal up that God hole and melt that ice cube? Say, what are you going to give me that will allow me to feel as good as, measure up to, and be a part of if you take away my alcohol? What are you going to give me that will rip out the terror and allow me to go anywhere I want to go and do anything I want to do and be anybody I want to be? But more important than all of that, old man, if you take away my alcohol, what are you going to give me that will allow me to do the one thing I wanted to do all my life? Just step out easy. A bunch of trite, hackneyed cliches hanging on the musty, dusty walls of old beat-up Alano clubs, that's what you're going to give me? Those are the magic, spiritual tools you're going to give me to walk out there on the bricks and face a hostile universe and try and eke out a living? Oh, I don't think so. I just don't think that'll work, old man. See, because when I don't drink, I go crazy. I go stark, raving, insane. I get suicidal and homicidal. Because I'm no good to me or anybody else. Because booze for me was a magic that fired the boiler and allowed me to become what I thought you were. See, it allowed me to have insides that matched your outside. And it was magic for a lot of years. So what are you going to give me, old man? Just don't drink? Well, thank you, but no thank you. See, he couldn't tell me about a magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous because he hadn't read a magic book 
called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if he had read it, he hadn't understood it. And if he had understood it, he wasn't able to pass it on. All he could tell me was the crap that he'd heard in AA meetings, the jargon, the buzzwords. And if you believe any of, any one of you people out there tonight believes one word of that crap, you're doomed. Because as Vince said, there is only one way to recovery, and that's through the magic steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had to run out my strength. My string ran out ten years later in the latter part of March of 1968 when I came out of my last alcoholic blackout in the intensive care unit of St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. I looked up at my doctor and he was crying. I could tell he was getting me all wet. And I said, why are you crying, Doc? And they're as melodramatic as police officers. Yeah, because, damn you, you've killed yourself. <laughs> like he's going to impress me. I said, well, finally. I said, what do we have, a little out-of-body deal here? He said, you're still a smartass, aren't you? I said, what else is there? He says, well, you got it all now. You got alcoholic gastritis, hemorrhagic pancreatitis. You got two ulcers that are hemorrhaging. You're bleeding from every opening in your body. Your blood pressure 60 over 40. That's serene. And we pushed seven pints of your blood type, and the bank's empty, and that's the end of that tune. Besides, I said, besides what? He said, besides, if you don't promise me you'll never drink again as long as you live, I won't even treat you. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> Ten days later, I was back out on the street and I was drunk again. And he told me I had not to do that anymore. And I came off that last drunk crawling around the unfinished concrete basement of an old beat-up house hanging on the side of a cliff in Silver Lake, northwest of downtown Los Angeles. Living like the animal that I'd become. And everything was broken. Broken dreams, broken promises, broken businesses, broken cars, broken bank accounts, broken houses, broken relationships, a broken mind, a broken body, and a broken soul. And I'd reached that point of incomprehensible demoralization which only an alcoholic can know. And in my hour of direst need, I cried out to the God of my childhood and he heard me. And the only word that I recall is a word remember, and I remembered another man. And I don't recall who he was or where it was, but he told me this. He said, Ted, one day when you reach a bottom, physically, mentally, morally, emotionally, socially, financially, and spiritually beneath which you cannot go, and you have satisfied the admonition laid down in chapter 3, which says we learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we are alcoholics is the first step in recovery. When you have reached that point, you can come home. And that night I went home to a little park on Roxbury in Beverly Hills where I grew up and used to play as a kid. And that's where I found those old-timers that walked the walk of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, it's easy to do podium talk. Anybody can do that. And I don't pay much attention to it anymore. But I watch people. I watch how they treat themselves. I watch how they treat others. I watch how they treat the things that belong to them. I watch how they treat animals. And I'll know all I ever need to know about that person. And I watched these people walk the walk of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it seemed to me they wore their sobriety like a crown. And somehow in the madness of insanity that was to be mine for a long, long time, I wanted what they had and I kept coming back. I watched them living life. I watched them getting, losing businesses, losing relationships, losing their health. I watched them dying. 
I watched him getting new businesses and new relationships. I watched him able to see again, not no longer blinded by the poison alcohol. I watched him able to walk again, no longer paralyzed by peripheral neuritis of alcohol. I watched them growing and changing their personalities in Alcoholics Anonymous. But all along with, but along with all the rest of it, I watched them doing this, and they were doing it by doing the one thing I wanted to do all my life. They were just stepping out easy. But they were doing it without taking any alcohol or any mind-altering chemicals of any kind. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was the only newcomer in that meeting, and they would not let go of me. There was a little gal by the name of Jeannie Johnson, and that first night she said, we have a little party at our house after every meeting, and we'd like you to come over. And so I went over, and she looked like a reincarnation of Judy Garland. She was gorgeous, and her boyfriend was kind of an ugly guy. <laughs> Saturday morning, she called me and she said, oh, oh, Ted, she said, I'm in a lot of trouble. I said, well, Jeannie, baby, you have called the right person. <laughs> what is your problem? She said, oh, she said, I got to speak at Radford Street tonight and at the Ilano Club. And, and she said, I don't have anybody to read Chapter 5. And unless I bring somebody to read Chapter 5, they'll never ask me back. And would you come? Chapter five. <laughs> well, I will be there. You know. The next Saturday, she called me again. She said, "Oh, I'm in, I'm in trouble again." I said, "What's the matter this time?" She said, "Well, we've got a panel to take down to the uh, Laguna Canyon meeting, and we need five people. Uh, and if we don't bring five, they'll never ask us back, and, and we only have four. And she said, "You don't have to say anything. All you got to do is stand up and say you're an alcoholic and." And, and give me your name and, and everything will be fine. Could you do that? I said, well, sure, baby. <laughs> and it just went on and on. The next week she called me because we were going to a Greek picnic and she was afraid that I was the only one to keep her boyfriend sober. I didn't care if he got drunk. <laughs> That's Nick, right? Keith knows Nick. Her, her now husband had to come to AA for eight years before he became an alcoholic. So if you're a newcomer, be careful. He caught it. And then they could get married. And they're still married. And uh, and it went on and on. And two months sober, why, they took me to my first roundup in Palm Springs. Two months sober, I went to my first roundup. And when the speaker uh, closed that night, and everybody stood and said the Lord's Prayer, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, and the magic went through me. And I made a prayer that night, and I said, God, if I can give back the barest modicum of what I have received tonight, I'll do whatever is necessary. And 12 years to that date, I stood before over 5,000 of you guys and you gals at that same roundup in Palm Springs as their Friday night opening speaker. And I was scared to death. And I was into my talk about two minutes when all of a sudden a wave passed over me that I can only describe as love. And it was my first true spiritual experience. And all fear of people, places, and things was removed from me in that moment, never to be returned. And that's one of the promises in a big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if many of you know how many promises are in the big book. But at my last count, I find there are over 182 promises 
in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they've all come true for me. And through the years, it's been my great fortune to share the podium across the United States and Canada with the people that I've come to find are the masters of the program. And I've become a guide. There's only one way that you can become a guide, and that is by stepping on the bodies of the ones that didn't make it. I was thinking the other night how many thousands and thousands of alcoholics it took coming in and out of meetings to make one alcoholic standing here tonight 28 years, well, 28 years Monday sober. Thousands and thousands have died so that I can stand here. 95% of the people in any given meeting will die drunk. Our success rate is about 5%. And yet the statistics in the big book are still true. It says 50% of those that come into AA and really try this program, oh, and really try the program, never have to go out again. And 25% that come in and really try the program will go out and come back. And that's a 75% success rate of the ones that really try the program. But only 5% of the gross population really tries the program. And I know what the statistics are. I stood up at the Kentucky State Convention with 5,000 people and they asked for everybody with 20 years or more to stand up. 1%, 50 people. 3% over 10 years. And yet everybody in this... You know, very often I say that I wish every one of you had terminal cancer. And I had a little 12-step program that would put you into permanent and irreversible remission. You know, I'd have about 103% participation. I'd have 3% doing it just in case. <laughs> but see, alcoholism is a disease that tells you you don't have it. So if it's telling you that now, you got it. <laughs> and so I work with many people. And I sponsor people across the United States and Canada. And... Uh, Karen's a good example of one of the ones that I sponsored through the steps. And uh, a lot of people I know, uh, and her friend Betsy, uh, that's not here, I sponsored her through the steps. My very first baby's here, Doc Pingree. Doc, would you stand up? <laughs> Doc's 21 years sober. Because, see, the people that do this deal, according to a big book called Alcoholics Anonymous, never have to drink again as long as they live. You may add one day at a time if you like. The one day at a timers are the ones that are hanging on by their knuckles. See, I bought this deal on an all-time, lifetime basis. And every year I make a new commitment to a deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it's a love affair that's been going on for almost 28 years. And I... uh I call Karen a sometimes quickly. Because hmm. our book says, are these extravagant promises? And then it goes on to answer its own question. And we say, no, we think, we think not. They will come true, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But they will come true if we work for them. People that I sponsor through the steps, I may, I sponsor them through the steps in one day. That is in two. Not through. Into steps eight, pardon me, into steps nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. 
into, not through. Because this is a deal that's never perfect and it's never finished. And it's very simple and it's very easy. There's nothing hard about it. The only people that tell you it's hard are the ones that haven't done it. And I did one of those great big convoluted uh, autobiographical things that had, you know, didn't have a damn thing to do with my drinking. It was embarrassing as hell. So have some fun with it. I heard some ass at our men's stag not too long ago. He said, well, there's no time frame in the steps. You can take it whenever you want to. People can't read, I guess. But there's a time schedule in there. See? Step one, as I said, is in chapter three. Step two, you can't take. You know that? Not a damn thing you can do about step two. And you don't have to. Because on page 84, it says, Sanity having now been restored. What happened? 24 pages. That's what happened. From 60 to 84. See, coming to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity, which means honesty. The psychiatric definition for sanity is honesty. Bill just got tired of saying the same word over and over again. You can't come to believe something unless it happens to you. You can't come to believe that you're going to get sunburned until your skin starts to peel. That's just the way it is. So I look at taking the steps kind of like learning how to fly. I went back when I was about uh, 15 years sober, I guess. I decided to get do my pilot's license right this time. They never expire, but... Uh, so I went, found a guy out on the tim, on the tarmac with a logbook about that thick, represented about 10,000 hours in the air. And I went up to him and I said, I'd like to get my pilot's license again. He said, well, if you got one, it doesn't expire. I said, I know, but I want to really do it right this time. Sober. <laughs> and he said an amazing thing. He said, let's go flying. I said, wait a minute. We well, hadn't we got to go to some book study meetings on Compass? He said, no, nah, it generally points north. I said, well, we certainly ought to go to some discussion meetings on artificial horizon. He said, no, just keep the blue side up. <laughs> I said, well, what if the brown side gets up? He said, let go and let God. <laughs> Sound like the program to me. You know, and we went flying. We found out how the instruments work in concert with the control surfaces and how the control surfaces work in concert with the slipstream. And we practiced all of the principles of aerodynamics. See, if we just practice right rudder, you'd have a different speaker here. <laughs> and the reason the steps are numbered is because there's 12 of them. I mean, he didn't want to lose count. He thought that was a zippy number. So, I have no problem with somebody, if they're careful, admitting they're an alcoholic and going home and making amends to their mom. Just don't share guilt, because that's dangerous. And read the directions before you make amends. So you don't do anything about step two. Except know that... See, Bill writes in a curious way. He writes the book, and you have to get kind of behind his mind to figure out how he's writing. And, and he writes the book like you're supposed to do something, only you're not. And then a little later, he gives you the directions of if you're supposed to do something. And after that, he gives you some promises. Uh, if you do it. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we've made in AA is putting the damn steps on the walls of Alano Club. 
people, newcomers come in, they look at the steps, then they make up their own program. And if you'll excuse the pun, what they end up with is a program that's off the wall. <laughs> and that's why it won't work. And um, so that brings us to step three. Made a decision. That's all there is to it. No action necessary. At the, after that part of chapter five, which we read in Southern California, which is really boring, uh, it says that our description of the alcoholic, our stories before and after the chapter of the agnostic made clear three pertinent ideas. A, they were alcoholic and could not manage their own lives. B, that no human power could have relieved their alcoholism. C, that God couldn't. What if he were sought? Not found, just sought. Get clear on that. Next sentence says, being convinced we're at step three. If you're not convinced of that, do what the book says. Go get drunk. That's what it says. Good case of the jitters may prove the point. There's an easier, softer way. Go back and read the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. They're designed to convince you of those three ideas. Then you're on step three. Turn the page over. There's a prayer for step three. Grab some huckleberry by the hand. I do it over the phone. Get on your knees. Read it. Don't let anybody see. It's embarrassing. <laughs> and then turn to the top of page 64, and there's a statement in there that is un- unknown to about 95% of the people in AA. It says, though our decision in step three was a vital and necessary step, which means it's important. It would have little lasting effect, which is kind of zero, unless followed at once. Hardly anybody knows those two words are in the book. At once, by searching in fearless moral inventory. That means, at once means now. <laughs> and yet, you'll hear these people stand up at the meetings and say, well, I do step one, two, and three every day. What they just told you is they're getting ready to start to commence to begin. They haven't done nothing. Go do that on your driver's license. Make a decision every morning. <laughs> Don't go down and take the test, though. <laughs> That'll work. And keep taking the bus. <laughs> and so have some fun with the inventory. Do what it says in the book. Make up a list of everybody you're pissed off at. It says resentful. And then make a list of everything you're afraid of. And then make a list of everybody that you've uh, harmed sexually. And that's... Uh, just a list. And then go back and write a couple of sentences. I found out that newcomers cannot do this according to the book. They cannot closely examine their whole life and see where they've been at fault and what their part in it was and what they could do differently. But I do that in the fifth step. And I really nail them to the wall. <laughs> well, anyway, you left something out there, puke. <laughs> yeah. And then you write a couple of sentences about why you're angry at this. I'm angry at my mother because she put me on the potty backwards. It's all good. All mothers do that. It's because they're sick. They want to watch. <laughs> and write a couple of sins about why you're afraid and a couple of sins about what happened in the sexual inventory. And that's when small farm animals get into the inventory. <laughs> I still maintain that my sponsor, that I was just helping the goat over the fence. <laughs> that's when the next door neighbors get into it. <laughs> Uncle Harry. And then find somebody you can trust and do that fifth step and solve each problem as it. Don't just sit there and find somebody you can just read it to because that's a big zero. That's when we closely examine it, going over each individual item. Find an answer for each one. You're going to have to make amends or pray for the person or whatever. And then go home and turn to the most magic page in the whole book, page 75. On page 75 is where the whole deal begins. 
That's where the spiritual side of the program begins. You hear these people say, but the whole thing is spiritual. Oh, I don't think so. Because it starts on page 75. On page 75, there's ten promises. It says on page 75, we're building an ox through which we'll walk, a free person. On page 75, it says all fears will fall away. You won't know that. You won't know when it happens, because it doesn't say when. Seven years on the program, I was invited to go to a party on a penthouse in Century City. And for some reason, I was moved to walk out on the roof and go over to the parapet. And I will never understand why I was moved to look over the edge of the parapet, something I'd never been able to do in my whole life. I looked straight down and realized the fear, the fear of heights had been removed. I didn't really believe it, so I got up and walked around a little bit on the parapet. And then I realized I could go skiing again without taking any drugs or alcohol. And I could take my little daughter, who was then five years old. And I put her in ski school because I can't teach anybody how to do anything that I'm emotionally involved with because I put expectations on them and then the expectations aren't satisfied and then I get angry. So I got her a real fine instructor, and she came up to me uh, a couple of days later. She said, can I go up in the big mountain with you, Dad? And I said, well, sure. So as we started up the mountain at Mammoth, why, we got higher and higher, and we got further and further away from the from the chalet, and she started to cry. And I didn't have to say all those things that I hear people say to their kids. I didn't have to say, stop crying. There's nothing to be afraid of. Big girls don't cry. I just said, it's going to be okay. Damn it, you always say that. <laughs> she learned how to talk for me. What can I tell you? And as we got to the top of the mountain, I helped her off the chairlift. She looked up at me with those fear-stained little eyes and her fear-filled little face. And she said, Daddy, you don't understand. You're a great big professional, and I'm just a tiny little newcomer. And that's when your prayers come to me, is in moments like that. When I came today, they gave me three prayers. The first one was this. Please pray God just keep coming back and listening to the music until you can understand the words. Maybe listening to the music of alcoholics, maybe for the first time, able to laugh at themselves. The healing magic of the laughter and the love of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've seen help put back together broken and shattered human beings that no human power could have ever put back together. And the love and program of Al-Anon and Alateen that I've seen put back together. Broken and shattered families and broken and shattered children that no human power could have ever put back together. The second prayer was this. Please pray God just put your hand in ours and come with us. Because we've been there. And we know the way. And it'll be okay. But hang on real tight and don't let go. Because if you let go, we're going to lose you. And we don't want to lose anybody. Not if we can help it. And the third prayer, the really hard one. Please pray God let us love you. Until you can learn to love yourself. Because it's all an inside job. I could not love another person, place, or thing until I learned to love myself. And so as I helped her off the chairlift, I said, we're going to play a little game. Just pretend you got your hand in mine and come with me. Because I am a professional. I know the way and it'll be okay. But hang on real tight and don't let go because I don't ever want to lose you. And that's the way we went down the mountain all the way, never falling. When we got to the bottom, she looked up at me with laughter in her eyes and sunshine in her face. And she said, Daddy, can we do it again? Without you people and a magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have missed it all. I almost lost my little daughter last year. She got all ready to commit suicide, and I didn't even know it. She hadn't any drug problems. She didn't have any alcohol problems. She'd been through five things that would have pushed any human being over the edge, any one of them. And she went through five of them standing up straight. 
and the last deal happened and she couldn't stand it. And I called on Alcoholics Anonymous. And you gave me a psychiatrist, the best one in San Diego, and we got her into that treatment. She's back in college today because of a magic deal called Alcoholics Anonymous and a God in my own understanding. And without you, she'd have jumped off the building that she'd picked out in San Diego. And I almost missed her. So hurry on, lest you miss the whole deal. On page 75 is where the obsession to drink is removed. It says if the obsession has not been removed, you will feel the fear of it leaving you now. On page 75 is where the spiritual experience begins to take place. It says, though you may have had certain spiritual beliefs prior to this point, you will now begin to have a spiritual experience. We will feel as if we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. You will have brushed the face of God. You will have established a conscious contact with a power greater than yourself. Immediately take in six more promises besides, and I almost missed it. So hurry on. Take six and seven immediately. There's the prayer for step seven. You have your list for step eight prepared in step four. Be sure and read the directions on making amends. Because honesty without compassion is brutality. Read the directions. There's about five pages on the amends. And it says, may direct amends wherever possible. Wherever is a place that will be provided by God if you can't find it or make it yourself. Some of those names will never be made amends to. You may never finish step nine as long as you live. But as long as you are willing, it satisfies the admonition. And now you're stuck in step 10, 11, and 12. Step 10 says continue to take personal inventory, which means that every night I have to review my day, asking myself where I've been selfish, self-centered, inconsiderate, dishonest, or fearful. And I have to write it, because that's what an inventory is, the definition, a written list. And then I have to share share it with somebody, because that's what the book says. And then I have to become willing to ask God to help me with it. And then I have to ask him. So step 10 is steps 4, 5, 6, and 7, separated by a little word, and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. Steps 8 and 9. And so there is no escape. And you never have to do step 4 over again if you do step 10 on a continuing basis because step 10 is designed to keep you current with your feelings, which is the secret of happiness. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve the conscious contact that you made somewhere back there between step 5 and 6 when you brushed the face of God. Praying only for his thinking for us if you replace, because that's what step 11 says, if you replace will and life with thinking and action, it gets a lot easier. If my life, if my thinking can become God-directed, then my actions will become God-directed, and my actions are my life. End of problem. Will and life is too hard for me to get a hold of, but thinking and actions is real easy. Let's go flying. Let's get set free. And the power to carry that out. So we're powerless in the beginning. We get all the power back in the end in a different form. My life's unmanageable in the beginning, but I get all the managers back in the end because my book says, hey, I got a new manager, don't I? And I'm not in charge anymore. And then it moves into step 12, sought to, having had a spiritual awakening, which is explained in the appendix as a personality change sufficient to recover from the disease of alcoholism. We tried to carry this message. What message? The message of how our personality changed through the application of some gentle, loving, God-given stuff. 
and practice these principles in our daily affairs. What principles? The principles of continuing to take personal inventory when we're wrong, promptly admitted it, seeking through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with the power greater than ourselves that we now understand. Carrying this message to other alcoholics and watching our personality and others changing as a result of the process of growth in steps 10, 11, and 12. And if you keep doing these things on a daily basis, perhaps one day the last promise will come true for you in the big book like it has for me. The last promise says, Surely we will meet some of you as we trudge the road to happy destiny. I didn't like the word trudge because it sounded difficult, and I don't believe that Bill put anything in the book that was difficult. So I went to a big seven-inch thick unabridged dictionary, much like he must have used when he wrote the book. And I found a definition that for me is absolutely perfect. And it's in keeping with the road to happy destiny. And the definition I found was this. Trudge. To walk with purpose. And what that means to me is that finally and at last I know exactly where I'm going. And I can get there by doing the one thing I wanted to do all my life. Just stepping out easy. I love you and thank you.